Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Well, we're about two weeks out from the tragic Valentine's Day shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And there's been so much conversation about this particular tragedy and just what we should do in general about school shootings and mass violence. Um, we're analyzing what happened, what didn't happen, what we should do next to keep our children safe at school. Uh, should teachers be armed? And what kind of training do educators really need to help keep schools safe? Uh, these are just a few of the questions at the forefront of the discussion, and to weigh in on how we can prevent and respond to school shootings, my guest today is a seasoned law enforcement professional and executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association, Mr. Thor Eels, and we'll hear from Thor this hour, but first the show is brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who has the only advanced safety education training program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian and how they've set the new standard in safety education, go to SSIGuardian.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Living Well with Dr. Pegg show. I'm here every Thursday offering information and inspiration and talking about mental health, wellness, and safety topics. We're here from 1 to 2 p.m. Mountain on KLZ 560 and online at drpegradio.com. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, you can go to the program archives and uh, see those episodes and share them with a friend. Well, I'm honored to have on the show uh, with me today by phone, Thor Eels, and he's the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association, and that's NTOA, which serves to enhance the performance of law enforcement personnel from all specialties and to improve public safety and domestic security through training, education, and tactical excellence. Uh, Thor Eels, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Doctor. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, and I appreciate your level of expertise and experience that you're going to bring to our conversation today. Uh, this is a sensitive topic in light of the recent uh, shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Uh, we're going to be talking about police tactics and how we can help keep students and personnel safe in schools and, and really in any public um, location. We're seeing these types of active shooting threats unfolding in outdoor venues and shopping centers. And so really it's a topic that we need to better understand um, from a law enforcement point of view. Now, your organization, NTOA, uh, serves law enforcement professionals uh, from a variety of backgrounds, um, police patrol officers, corrections, canine units, snipers, and SWAT, uh, which might be very relevant for us today to understand more about kind of the tactics with um, SWAT teams and that kind of thing. So from a law enforcement or tactical point of view, uh, can you uh, review what we know as of today regarding what happened in Parkland, Florida two weeks ago? There's been lots of new information unfolding almost every day. Kind of where are we through a uh, tactical lens to help us understand? Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, as you well know, uh, much of the information regarding uh, the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland has 
been changing almost daily mm-hmm. as more information becomes available. And uh, currently, you know, there's some discussion and debate as to whether first responding deputies were ordered to stage now versus make entry and different uh, law enforcement sources and so-called experts are opining about that. And I think I would simply initially caution for uh, that we not rush to judgment as to whether any of the tactics that were being employed there were correct or incorrect. I, I don't know that we have enough information to pass judgment one way or the other, uh, depending on what version of uh, timeline or sequence of events you follow, uh, some of the different reported tactics that were used by the deputies uh, would or would not be uh, correct. So, you know, the timeline for the actual shooting was roughly three minutes uh, where the suspect in that case was actually shooting the innocent victims. And so much of the confusion concerning the response was where were the gunshots coming from? Were there echoes that were drawing attention, misleading the deputies as to where the suspect might be? Uh, and then whether or not there were any gunshots actually taking place when some other officers responded. So, you know, much of the tactics are dependent upon the immediate intelligence that a first responding officer or deputy gets as to whether they make an immediate entry, where they proceed, uh, how they proceed, uh, and what type of resources are committed. Well, we know that um, the assailant was sighted on the school property and he was recognized. And in the majority of school shootings, the assailant is usually a current student. Now, this student wasn't too far removed from being um, a current student. He had been expelled. Um, But how does that change the law enforcement response or the tactical response when the assailant is known to the school personnel versus when a stranger approaches? Well, it, the honest answer is it really doesn't change it a lot, uh, doctor, because of, unless you have the ability to have an officer or deputy immediately intervene, uh, it's difficult. Really, the breakdown is frequently with a lack of training and people actually confronting uh, individuals that they think are either suspicious or have known to be problematic. Uh, many people tend to shy away from that because they're either not empowered or they're not trained in how to do that in a manner that doesn't endanger themselves. And that's one of those areas that we really need to do a much, much better job of is this training and empowerment of staff and personnel that are on the school grounds that become a multiplier of eyes and trip wires for danger. Mm-hmm. And so when we see a student that's familiar or anyone, we can think about workplace scenarios where even if it's a a spouse of an employee, they're recognized. And so maybe they're not um, scrutinized or maybe they're not barred entry uh, per protocols. They're allowed to enter um, unimpeded in some cases because they're known. Uh, In this case at Douglas High School, he was known as someone who Um, had concerning behavior in the past, and that's why he was no longer a current student. And so um, I I hear what you're saying about the importance of training and empowering all of us um, 
as eyes and ears when we see something, say something, as Homeland Security encourages us to do. Uh, but what do we what do we say? What do we what do we look for? Is uh, why that training is so important. Um, now, you you shared in your initial remarks that uh, there's been so much um, information coming in, and it's changing almost every day. And we're not sure what's accurate and what, what's just speculation. Uh, but one thing we did hear was that the uh, school resource officer uh, did not go in when he heard shots fired. However, we're now learning that um, he did initially run towards the building, um, but then thought the gunshots were coming from outside of the school. And I read that his attorney uh, says that he then followed protocol by staying outside of the school. His, his attorney says there's evidence and witnesses that support his account and exonerate him. Um, he was called a coward. Uh, that was the narrative, was that he didn't go in. Um, so can we back up a little bit before we talk about what may or may not have happened? Um, explain what a school resource officer is. What is their role at a school? Well, the, what sets them apart is that they are a sworn law enforcement officer. So they are uh, trained and employed by the respective law enforcement agency that is providing that surface, uh, service uh, to the school and the school district. Uh, they are then assigned to the school. And, you know, the primary uh, role there is safety of the school and uh, those in the school. They also handle uh, various types of calls for service that might otherwise result in a police response to the campus. So this allows an agency to not have to pull from uh, resources on the streets that are handling other courses, uh, or excuse me, uh, calls for service. And then uh, the last thing is frequently they uh, they engage in some sort of teaching. You may recall mm. the D.A.R.E. programs from the mm, past. Yeah. But they give uh, different presentations to students or to uh, parents and teachers uh, regarding different types of programs regarding law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Now, are, are SROs um, selected or do they choose that assignment? Are they um, just placed there when they apply to be police officers in a particular area? That's the vacancy and they go there? Or is it is it a special position that someone would apply to? Well, uh, all of the above. <laughs> so that's the uh, one of the challenges that law enforcement in this country has. Uh, the fact that we really uh, lack standards across the board is very, very challenging. I mean, there are 18,000-plus police departments in the United States, over 3,000 different sheriff's departments, and there's really no st national standard. Now, there is a, a national association which represents school resource officers that have made an attempt to, to some degree, standardize some of the training. They have a, a, a basic 40-hour class that um, SROs attend, and in fact, uh, the state of Colorado mandates that a SRO assigned to school has to complete uh, this mandatory 40-hour training. Um, they passed the law back in January of 2014 to accomplish that. But it's still up to each agency to determine their selection process, whether it's um, an appointment, whether it's a selection through a testing process, uh, or it, it varies. So there is really no uh, 
one specific methodology applied to the SRO selection. Because mm-hmm. it seems that it should be someone who has an interest in working, number one, with young people. That would be the primary uh, folks they'd be serving and protecting. And so they would need some special training even just to uh, understand the develop- developmental stage of whatever level of school they're um, serving in. Um, but you're saying that may or may not be the case. Well, it may not uh to your point, though, and you are correct, is that certainly it is helpful if the assigned officer or deputy has some training in adolescent development and stages, different types of uh, mental health challenges that a juvenile might have that is differing from an adult, and certainly the approaches and how to handle de-escalation and things of that nature uh, are important, and those are included in the basic and advanced SRO trainings that are uh, offered, as is there's a specialty class that is instructed on adolescent uh, mental health training for the SRO specifically. Where we're lacking, though, is the mandatory requirements that SROs attend this. And Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, Colorado has a mandatory requirement for the basic training. But many other states do not have this uh, and don't really apply this type of criteria. Mm -hmm. And so we can get some comfort in knowing that every SRO is a trained police officer and has gone through the, you know, expected training for a law enforcement professional, but what we may not have in any given school is a um, school resource officer who's been trained in some specific areas that would benefit them uh, being in that environment in a school. Correct. Okay. Now, what would a normal um, response be for the SRO when shots are fired inside the school, When, when we're kind of looking at what happened at Parkland? Uh, in in Florida, um, he thought the shots were fired outside, but had he known they were being fired inside, what should we have expected to see? Well, in, in a perfect world, the training is that you do move, in fact, toward the sound of the gunfire, is what the most contemporary training is, that you are going to move to the threat as quickly as you possibly can identify that threat, and then address the threat with your primary goal being to neutralize the threat. And I want to be clear that when I use the word neutralize, many uh, infer that we mean to use deadly force, and that is not necessarily the case. And simply by chasing the suspect away from potential victims into a closet or into an area where there are no Uh, innocent victims, then you've neutralized the threat. So we're simply trying to remove the suspect's capacity or ability to inflict serious injury or death on people that are unable to protect themselves. But Mm -hmm. that's their primary focus is to protect those that cannot protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that really doesn't change if the shots are coming from outside of the school. The the, the concept is still the same. It's just a matter of was this SRO in Parkland, Florida, 
inaccurate in his uh, determination of where the gunfire was coming from. Partially, I mean, the tactic does change a little bit um, in that when you're in an open air environment outside, it's more difficult to move in in a way to uh, secure the safety of others versus inside when I can direct children into classrooms and away from potential gunfire, uh, that type of thing. But as far as your focus of getting to the threat, um, that does remain the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'll talk about um, uh, in more detail some of the ways in which tax tactics have changed, in, in particular after Columbine. Uh, you were on my program about a month ago, and we talked a little bit about that, Columbine and Ferguson, and some of the ways in which uh, police tactics are, are have changed and even are often misperceived. Um, but uh, after Columbine, officers are required to go in um, when they first uh, get the call, and they don't wait for backup. Before Columbine, they set up a perimeter around the school, and they waited. And so there's been a lot said about the SRO freezing up or choking. We don't really know uh, what what the reality is. Uh, Did he misperceive where the sounds were coming from? Did he choke? Did he choose not to go in? Um, Let's talk about that when we come back from the break. My guest is Thor Eels, and he's executive director with National Tactical Officers Association. And we're talking about the tragic uh, shooting in Parkland, Florida, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And looking at at police tactics, something we don't often get inside information in. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit ssiguardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com slash books to purchase your copy today. Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready safe learning environment. 
SSI Guardian's comprehensive evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And I have one seat left for my Do Something Different for Change personal transformation retreat this Saturday, March 3rd in Denver. If you want change in one or more areas of your life or you're feeling stuck and need strategies to move forward, join me for this one-day event. We're marching forth on March 3rd. Register at drpegradio.com slash retreat. My guest today is Thor Eels, and he's the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. If you'd like to join our conversation and ask Thor Eels a question, give us a call. The number is 303-477-5600. Thanks so much again, Thor, for being back with me on the program. Thank you. And Thor, how can... uh, listeners reach out to you and learn more about NTOA? Well, the best is uh, to reach us through the web, and our website is www.ntoa.org. All right, great. Thanks so much. And, uh, Thor, so I want to talk a little bit about, and this is kind of maybe my, you know, thinking on it. I don't know how widespread this thinking is, but um, after Columbine, the police tactics changed and police officers are now, as you described, you know, required to go in towards the threat, towards the sound of gunfire and attempt to neutralize the threat. And they go in when they arrive on the scene. Uh, They don't establish the perimeter anymore and wait for backup and all of that. And so um, uh, there might be officers who don't really want to do that, to go into the fire um, when it's just them by themselves or maybe with one other partner. They'd rather wait on a lot more backup. Uh, But maybe they don't want want to admit that so they they can keep their jobs. Uh, but in their minds, they're really not prepared to, to go in and do that. Um, what are your thoughts about that? That's just my, my little pet theory. Well, I wish I could categorically uh, refute that, but I don't think that I believe that's entirely a false premise or that I haven't seen that. I think any police officer or deputy that were being totally honest with people would say that there are uh, very, very few uh, that they've worked with that they have some question about whether they're mentally prepared to engage in that type of confrontation. And uh, unfortunately, they exist. Um, And I don't know that there's any way to truly ensure that that's not the case. I mean, I think the military engages in very robust selection and yet they found that there are individuals that when it comes time to perform in combat or otherwise don't, and we're, we're uh, not dissimilar. So I think um, there are some that potentially could fall in that category, but I think also when you look at incidents such as what took place in Las Vegas or San Bernardino, you know, there are multiple other uh, examples where you do have the officers and deputies actively running towards uh, gunfire mm-hmm. and doing their very best to uh, to fulfill their duty to protect others. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one thing that that's been said, and we don't know really what happened, 
uh, and how to interpret um, the videos and, and things that we've seen, dispatch recordings that we've heard. Uh, but it's been said that the SRO at Douglas High School did freeze up or he choked. Um, and so um, we, we don't know in, in his mind did he decide he wasn't going in, but in fact he's been acknowledged as a a stellar uh, police officer in the past and an SRO of the year, if I remember correctly. I've read something about that. Um, so a lot has been said about him possibly freezing up or choking. Um, what kind of training is truly needed so that a law enforcement professional would not freeze up or choke? You like to think the selection process would minimize the number of folks who would just choose not to go in, but how common is it to freeze up or to choke in a particular situation? Well, I honestly couldn't tell you what you know how often that occurs. Um, my personal experience has been that the vast majority of officers and deputies do their job when they need to do their job, uh, despite the most difficult of circumstances. Uh, I, I could say that categorically just from my anecdotal experience of over 30 years. But um, my practical experience in training tactical officers for many, many years is that repetitive training, literally tens of dozens of hundreds of hours are what are needed in order to have a comfort level where under that type of tremendous stress, you're able to think accurately and make tactically sound decisions. Um, it is something that that does take training, uh, the more realistic the training, the better, the more frequent the realistic training, even better yet. Mm -hmm. So that's a recurring theme I'm hearing from you is just the, the importance of the role of training and the right training and frequency of training um, for law enforcement professionals and certainly um, educators uh, who we talked earlier in the context of being able to recognize suspicious behavior or behaviors of concern and knowing what to do. Um, you don't know in, unless you're trained. Now, when I first heard about what happened um, with the SRO, who um, he was uh, basically criticized, we, we assumed that he did not go in when he heard the sounds of gunfire. Now his attorney is saying he thought the sounds of gunfire were coming from outside, but he was shamed, he was criticized, he was demonized. And he was put on leave and then later resigned. And it's possible now he might be exonerated, uh, but could you describe what he might be going through? Um, a police officer who um, perhaps failed to respond appropriately, or perhaps he did respond appropriately based on wrong information, but he's being demonized um, in the public. What might he be going through and, and uh, what concerns uh, should we have or might we have for his well-being? Well, uh, I'll be honest in that I say my heart goes out to him. Um, I think that too many, to include uh, his sheriff, were far too quick to pass judgment and cast aspersions or doubts on his character in a very, very dynamic and difficult situation. Um, we are still learning here, as you mentioned, almost two weeks later, uh, different sets of circumstances, information, uh, painting an entirely different picture of this deputy. Um, I have to believe that that deputy who had that many years of stellar service didn't suddenly um, flush all 
that down the drain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not likely. Uh, and so for him, uh, I'm sure that he is devastated, that he has dedicated his life to this profession, to doing what he believed was right. And on that day, uh, I tend to suspect, hearing the information that I'm hearing now, he acted the way he believed was the correct way to act. Um, in our profession, we frequently f- refer to a Shakespearean quote, which is, uh, you take my honor, you take my life. Mm. And so for him to have his honor and character questioned and uh, to be called many of the hateful things that he's been called with regarding the victims, uh, I think it's absolutely tragic. And I'm sure that he and his family and those close to him are struggling with this. Mm-hmm. And that was my concern, even before we heard the information that perhaps he didn't uh, run away from the scene. Um, my first initial response was concern for his own safety, just imagining, even if he had chosen not to go in, but certainly if if um, he was an honorable, um, experienced uh, law enforcement professional who would have laid down his life to help save those children, my thinking was how devastated he must be either way and uh, being concerned for his own safety and mental well-being. Um, are there any kinds of support services available for someone in that type of situation? I understand he resigned, but if he were still um, connected to the police force, uh, what would be available for him? Well, were he still employed, uh, most agencies now, particularly uh, one of the size of his agency do tend to have uh, fairly significant uh, psychological services available, you know, employee uh, health programs, EIP programs, uh, some of the larger agencies, and his agency is a pretty good size agency, uh, even tend to have uh, staff uh, specifically trained in psychology that are able to help with critical incident debriefs and management uh, and, and counseling and referral to professional counselors to get the right support uh, to, to the uh, involved officers or deputies. Um, unfortunately, in his case, with his resignation, you know, any of the benefits that he would have had uh, are unlikely to be uh, as accessible as they would have been. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I can imagine just in the day-to-day uh duties of a police officer, they're encountering all kinds of things that can be traumatic for the people that they are protecting and serving, and certainly traumatic for them as well. Uh, Those officers and first responders who did respond to Douglas High School, where 17 were killed and many injured, um, that's got to be traumatic um, for the officers. Can you talk about that, um, just the emotional trauma that law enforcement face when they respond to an active shooting, in particular at a school where there's young people killed and injured? How hard is that? Well, it, it, it is difficult. Um, often, you know, those of us that are responding to those incidents were parents as well. Mm-hmm. And so to deal with it, you have to... Uh, Put those thoughts of your children out of your mind. Focus simply on the task at hand and uh, revert back to your training and hopefully do the best that you can. But certainly after the fact, uh, we are just as vulnerable as any other parent to the same type of emotions of 
uh, being concerned for our kids' safety and, but for the grace of God, there go I type of uh, thoughts. Uh, often there's, there's guilt uh, associated with that, and uh, you're feeling bad for others. So we are just as susceptible. I think it's just through the course of many years of training, you, you learn how to deal with it. Um, but as we're starting to see, um, more often we have incidents of first responders that uh, have difficulty in transitioning back into the workforce following these incidents. Mm-hmm. And I imagine there's st- the same types of supports that we spoke about a minute ago for any individual officer in a situation like this SRO in Florida, uh, there are services to support uh, and even recognize perhaps that a, an officer is not coping well with a traumatic situation that they've responded to. True. Uh, we are much better, I think, than we were even five or ten years ago in ensuring that uh, we have peer support programs and often first-line supervisors that receive additional training in post-critical incident management in how to keep a close eye on one another to identify an individual that might be struggling uh, post-critical incident and ensuring that we intervene uh, to prevent uh, any tragedies. Mm -hmm. Well, the last time you were on my program, Thor, uh, we talked about uh, something you call good time and bad time. And that bad time is when the bad guy, so to speak, is shooting or killing. And I, I've read um, some statistics, and you actually said something here today that that uh, supports it. That in, in an active shooting incident, which on average lasts only a matter of minutes, and you said in this um, shooting at Douglas High School it was three minutes, um, that someone is killed, um, you know, on average every 17 seconds during these short. Uh, incidents. And if we did the math uh, in Parkland, that's, you know, someone being killed every, about every 10 seconds until um, until the shooting stopped. And uh, time's not always on our side. Um, people are suggesting that arming teachers would help reduce the number of deaths, especially given the short window on average that these in- incidents last. Um, what are your thoughts on teachers being armed in schools in light of, you know, the short uh, time frame that these incidents unfold? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. It's one that's certainly generating a lot of uh, debate and interest. And as with most of the proposals, uh, there are pros and cons. Uh, Certainly the pro is that if, big if, emphasis on if, Uh, you have the right teacher in the right place at the right time, they very well may be able to make a difference. Um, No question. But my personal concern, and I think the concern of others in law enforcement, is recognizing the amount of training, the time for training, the selection of the right individuals to be armed uh, that would go into this is far, far greater than I think what many people appreciate. I mean, not only do you have to select the right people that have the right mindset, and that in of itself is not an easy task. I mean, teachers become teachers for a reason and didn't become law enforcement officers. They want to teach, and their focus is on children. 
Uh, so the mindset and the expectation that a teacher could immediately go from teaching calculus to suddenly seeing a student, former student, and having to engage them with deadly force is a, uh, I think, a huge, huge presumption. Uh, then you have to give them the firearms training, which is timely uh, in that it needs to focus not only on the skills of how to handle a firearm safely, but proper decision-making, when to shoot, when to not shoot. And then lastly, one that is not frequently discussed but is critical is weapons retention. How does this teacher prevent themselves from being disarmed by a disgruntled parent, a disgruntled student, uh, someone who has a crisis or gets you know, angry in a classroom? Um, and then the, I think the other uh, attached component to this is liability. Um, I cannot imagine what would happen to school districts' uh, self-insurance or insurance policies uh, to ensure the arming of teachers. Uh, you know, the cost for that would far, far outweigh what they could do with the money uh, simply to make the school safer. Well, those are those are some important things to take into consideration. Um, when we come back to after the break, I want to talk in more detail about each of those um, items that you mentioned there, and let's explore them. Uh, the first would be mindset, uh, to really try to understand the mindset that would be required, uh, as you said, not only to make the switch from teaching to now being uh, tasked with um, using deadly force, uh, but just the mindset to be able to do that. I can say for myself that um, if I were armed, uh, I don't know if I could pull the trigger, so I'm probably not the right person uh, to be holding the gun. But let's talk when we return about what that mindset would be. Uh, how would those teachers be identified? They could volunteer and say they were willing, they, they, they may want to do it, but what would be the right mindset to be effective in that role? I'm speaking with Thor Eels, and he's the... Uh, the director of the National Tactical Officers Association. And we're talking about should teachers be armed? Give us a call. We'll be back after these messages. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do-something-different-for-a-change 
personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com retreat. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I've been speaking with Thor Eels. He's the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. And we're talking about law enforcement response uh, to school shootings and the question of arming teachers. Uh, if you have a question for Thor or want to chime in, give us a call at 303-477-5600. So, Thor, thanks again for being with me. And uh, just the information is, is really um, helpful to give us a fuller picture of the law enforcement tactics, uh, the amount of training that's required to, to function effectively as a law, law enforcement professional, and then thinking, you know, is this something that uh, a civilian, that a, a layperson, a teacher uh, should be doing? Uh, so let's talk about that mindset um, in terms of, um, you know, some people are talking about the veterans or former, former military, former law enforcement who are now teachers, and I think that that would be a very small subset of the teaching population, those with that kind of background. Um, so for the, the average teacher who has no military background, no law enforcement background, talk about the, the mindset that would be required uh, to be in that role of being armed in the school. Well, it, it is very different, um, contrary to what maybe our homicide rates in this country or these horrific incidents might lead us to believe. Um, killing is not natural. And so um, Dr. David Grossman, who is a, one of the foremost experts on active shooters and uh, killing uh, in, in this country, uh, looked at a study that was done by the military going all the way back to the Civil War. And what they found is that in each conflict, major conflict, uh, where mindset was not factored into military training with regard to using deadly force, uh, the numbers were very, very low. I mean, very, very few uh, combatants actually use their weapons. And so it's not something that's natural. It is something that has to be addressed in a training environment where people are mentally, uh, willfully thinking about the application of using deadly force, understanding that when they pull that trigger, and that bullet is fired, that they are accountable for that and the consequences of that, uh, which very well could mean being responsible for the death of another. Mm -hmm. And that is a tremendous responsibility to bear and uh, not one that is easily achieved without very specific focused training. Mm -hmm. Another area you said that would require a lot of training and does require a lot of training for law enforcement professionals is decision-making. Uh, so once you have that mindset that I'm able to do this and I can deal with the consequences, um, how do you make the decision when it is indicated to shoot or not to shoot? Correct. Yeah, that's you know the other part that makes it such a tremendous responsibility is uh, unlike a bad guy or a bad person who's firing where they really not are not worried about any type of accountability, 
Uh, on the other side, every time an officer or citizen is pulling the trigger, they're responsible for that. And so under the circumstances, they have to make good decisions. Is it the proper time? Is that the right threat that I'm shooting at? Is the person legitimately a threat under what circumstances? And factor into that all of the chaos of people essentially in a panic uh, running for their lives. Um, not an easy environment to perform in. And easy to make mistakes. Um, we even see it with trained law enforcement professionals um, not always making that decision uh, with accurate information, and it can have deadly consequences. That's correct. And you also talked about uh, weapons retention would be another area or another uh, concern uh, in terms of uh, arming teachers. Say more about that. Well, you know, depending on how you arm the teachers in terms of where the weapon is and under what circumstances you place that weapon in the classroom. But, you know, it, it seems to me that part of that, you want the weapon to be somewhat accessible so that it can be used in a short period of time. And so how do you ensure that that weapon is kept in a safe place? So uh, you can certainly put it in a lockbox. You can do things like that. But then what about people getting access to that? If you put it on the person, the teacher themselves is actually carrying it. Do they have the training to prevent themselves from being disarmed? And how extensive should that training be? And um, what might that lead to in terms of potential consequences uh, if that, uh, that teacher is disarmed? Mm -hmm. Because now where there might not have been a weapon, now there is. And it's one of the tenets that a rookie officer or deputy is first taught is to remind them that on every single call that they respond on, there will always be at least one gun present, hmm. their own. And so that means they have the responsibility for maintaining that weapon mm -hmm. in a safe environment. Now, there's been talk about training teachers who are interested in being armed. Um, how many hours of training would be needed? You've mentioned so many different areas where uh, we'd, we'd need training for decision-making, for weapons retention, how to make sure the weapon's not used against you, um, to, even just to fire accurately under stress and chaos. Um, what, kind, what would that training even look like? Um, how many hours uh, are law enforcement professionals um, doing that kind of training? How long does it take over what course of time? And how often would it have to be uh, repeated and reinforced? Well, it's a great question, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, it on a national level, it does vary uh, significantly. But to to give the listeners some idea, in Colorado, uh, law enforcement agency, if an officer is attending a basic academy, they have to uh, shoot or spend a minimum of 64 hours on weapons firearms training. That's the minimum. Many uh, of those academies spend significantly longer, almost double that, in getting people to a minimum level of proficiency with a firearm. And then every year thereafter, they're required to spend an additional 12 hours uh, annually uh, on maintenance of perishable skills. 
So those could be the firearms, they will be the uh, weapons retention, defensive tactics, you know, the type of training uh, that they would have to engage in. And so, you know, it becomes a pretty expensive proposition when you factor in the time and then uh, purchasing the weapons, uh, purchasing the ammunition for all of that training mm. and, and maintaining it. Um, it. It is a significant undertaking. Wow. And and with all of that training, um, do you have any stats or even anecdotally on the accuracy um, of, amongst the best shooters on the police force? With all of that training, um, how accurate in that kind of um, chaotic situation where you need split-second decision-making are the best-trained police officers? Well, it's been quite a while since a study was done, but one of the biggest studies that was uh, ever uh, completed looking at officer-involved shootings uh, was done a number of years ago now out of New York. And as I recall, uh, even then, with the officers and their training, their accuracy was roughly somewhere in the 20, uh, 20 percentile. Wow. So it's not, it's not really uh, that stellar uh, performance, but that just really underscores the difficulty it is to operate under extreme stress and the need for training. Now, if you look at, you know, tactical teams would spend a significantly higher amount of training in firearms and proficiency, but most importantly in decision-making and when and where to use force, um, you know, those performances tend to be significantly higher than that. But um, those are people that are very specifically selected, uh, undergo far more training than the average officer or deputy does. Mm-hmm. And you finally mentioned um, one concern uh, or one thing to take into consideration if teachers were to be armed was liability. And say, say more about that, what that would look like. Um, and is, is that an unsur- insurmountable uh, barrier? Well, I don't know that it's insurmountable, but it would be extremely expensive. I mean, what I can speak to is that, as an example, uh, in in our profession or any of the training professions uh, that involve firearms, liability insurance for that is very, very, very high. It's like trying to insure a 15-year-old male who's going to be driving a sports car. Um, It's not... It's not cheap, Um, and so I think what would happen is you would find that school districts that are going well outside of sort of the realm of their expertise and and really scope of um, focus would find themselves having to answer to insurance companies who would be somewhat skeptical skeptical about uh, insuring Teachers. I mean, for as I said, the variety of reasons. I mean, as you probably saw just yesterday, uh, there was a teacher who fired a gun in a classroom and has been arrested for that, who had a history of some some difficulties. And uh, so, you know, we tend to be in a pretty uh, litigious society uh, where people's answers to some of the difficulties is to file lawsuits. And I think uh, the fact that you would have teachers with weapons uh, 
would pose some challenges uh, from a liability perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, if, even if we were um, to arm teachers, um, there a lot would have to happen before the first one could um, have that weapon in the classroom. Uh, what else should we be looking at in addition? I, I don't know that it's either or solutions for, or even when we're asked, well, why are these things happening? There's no one cause we can point to. It's, it's multifaceted. It's complex. And so what are some other things that we need to be looking at other, other than or in addition to, depending how, how it turns out in uh, arming uh, teachers in the, in the schools, what else should we be looking at to keep schools safe right now, uh, today? Well, I, I think that is really the answer, Doctor, is that we are allowing ourselves to be distracted looking for these quick answers, whether it's uh, gun control, arming teachers. Uh, both of those are probably going to be lengthy solutions if ever arrived at. But in the interim, we can be doing a lot of things that make our schools safer, installing bulletproof glass, training the staff, uh, first and foremost, implementing protocols and what to do and when to do these things, whether it's challenging an individual on campus and uh, how to go about uh, empowering people to make decisions in critical moments, installing cameras with real-time monitoring and intelligence capacity where that uh, camera is linked directly to a public safety communication center. So that people can monitor it and share real-time information with responding law enforcement and EMS, uh, installing motion detectors, something as simple as robust locks. Um, You know, there there are protocols that can be implemented throughout the state, in each state, that would significantly enhance student safety. Uh, The state of Indiana is way, way ahead of the rest of this country in implementing uh, these types of protocols. They have a school that is a model school for safety, and it looks like any other school. You would have no idea as to how safe that school is just from the material and technological enhancements that they've installed. These are real solutions, and these are implementable today. Uh, Certainly they're costly, but I think they are far less costly than the loss of a student uh, or one lawsuit as a result of a firearm being used uh, inappropriately by someone. Hmm. Well, I think at the heart of everything uh, is training. Uh, that's, That's a solution that can be implemented right away. Uh, where you might still have to purchase, um, you mentioned cameras and and bulletproof glass and all of those things. But training is something that can begun begun right away. Um, advanced active shooter training, how to respond in an active shooter event, and very significantly, um, how to recognize signs that someone's moving on a path to violence. Wouldn't it be much more cost effective and and life effective if we just stopped it to begin with. When we see a student with a grievance, if we're trained in how to uh, help that student resolve their problems, how to recognize a sign, the signs that they're moving on that pathway to violence and intervene and get them the support that they need or, or detain them if, if indicated. Uh, so training, I think, is really at the, at the center of our response that we can implement immediately. What are your thoughts on that, Thor? 
I, I could not agree with you more, Doctor. I think that is absolutely what we should be doing is spending more time on prevention uh, versus response. I and mean, certainly we do need to improve our response, uh, which has been highlighted as a result of this last uh, tragedy. But it's that good time, bad time. Mm -hmm. We have some good time right now where we can be using the time to prevent another incident in recognizing who needs help, getting them help, and also training our teachers, our administrators, our law enforcement, and how we can work together to create safe environments. Mm -hmm. And that's something we, we can be doing is collaborating with our local law enforcement, having them do walkthroughs, having them review our emergency operations plans, uh, working with us during the lockdown practice. Uh, there's so many things we can start doing today. Uh, Thor Eels, thank you so much for being my guest today and bringing your expertise to the conversation. Thank you for having me, Doctor. Well, listeners, uh, that was Thor Eels uh, with the National Tactical Officers Association. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Thanks so much for listening. want to just remind you to live well. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.